get me a little bit of coffee before the second uh, teaching. I've been um, getting up at five, which if you know anything about me, getting up at five is like, yeah, I don't know why I'm doing this. But um, I read this book called The 5 a.m. Club by Robin Sharma. It's a fabulous book. He's a little flowery, flowery in his, his writing. Um, it's not written, you know, I don't think he's a, a believer in Jesus, but it's not like bad or anything like that. Um, but some people get weird on that stuff. But it is an absolutely great book. And I realize I've got to have more time. And the way I'm going to have more time is by getting up earlier. So he like gives you a plan and all kinds of stuff. And it's been working. But I'm like, this is my second week into it. And I'm all, I'm so sleepy. If I sit down, I get a little bit sleepy. So I have to get me some coffee. Uh, but I wanted to get into the Christian and patriotism in this uh, second teaching. Because in the first one, I laid the foundation of the governmental role of the people of God throughout the Bible, as well as New Testament examples of influence. Um, and it's important to trace uh, the history of America and address the question of patriotism. Now, if you're not from America, take these lessons uh, that you're going to learn and apply them where you're at and in your country. But many believers feel that you can't be patriotic to one's country and loyal to the kingdom of God. Now, the idea is short-sighted because God's intent is to give the nations to his son as an inheritance, which is why Jesus gave us authority. So if you remember from the last teaching, I'm just going to read verses 7 through 8 of Psalm 2. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations or I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the best way to disciple a nation is through those that live there, the indigenous people. Um, one of the things that uh, I found uh, quite refreshing years ago is probably, gosh, Man, we might be looking at 15 years ago now, but um, I had some friends that they did a lot of work with the ministry in India. And the whole premise of the ministry in India that was um, led by a man that was from India was that people from India should disciple Indians. And it was, I was like, what? Huh? What do you mean? I mean, we always think that, you know, we need to go into a nation and disciple that nation. And while that is a reasonable um, idea, I mean, the apostles did it and things like that. Uh, so I don't mind that. But if you look at them, they were actually, even though they were Jewish, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. So they actually were in their sphere and then they would also go into other uh, nations of which they were not um, ethnically bound or of that lineage. But still the idea that people that live in their nation should disciple their nation is just a refreshing idea. So I am of that uh, mind as well, and I do believe that is one of the highest acts of patriotism you could have. Patriotism is simply loving your country. You never love it above God. You never love your country above the kingdom of God. You never allow your country to take a place that is above loyalty to Him and His agenda. However, loyalty to one's country is, uh, is a natural uh, progression of one's loyal love to God because God loves nations 
just like he loves individual people. So loving your nation isn't wrong. It's not this you know, nationalism like they've tried to say with uh, uh, former President Trump that you're Nazis if you love your country, if you um, hold it in high esteem. That's ridiculous. How are you supposed to disciple a nation if you don't love that nation? So uh, let me give you an example. Okay, let's, let's get into scripture because I can get on a soapbox quick on this. In Luke 19.35-40 it says, And they brought, uh, they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, uh, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, silent the very stones would cry out. Now, this event is extremely significant, and the Pharisees would have known what he's talking about because it was tied to Daniel's 70-week prophecy. In Daniel 9, 24-27, it says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it will be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, and desolations are decreed. Okay, so from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem after it was uh, brought down by Babylon to the coming of the prince, it was fulfilled to the day Jesus rode the cult into Jerusalem. Exactly to the day. By riding a colt versus a horse, he was coming in uh, peacefully as a king. Anytime a king would ride a horse, he was coming to make war. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, that's why Jesus is on a horse. And it was just a, a, a tradition, something that kings did back then. Now here's what's interesting. The phrase, an anointed one shall be cut off, means to make a covenant, which is what Jesus did, but it was also a word that was used to describe a capital punishment of death. In other words, to put to death by any means. That's a quote. So this is very clearly speaking of Jesus. Okay. So then the next event is that the people of the prince or a counterfeit uh, antichrist spirit will destroy the city and its sanctuary. Uh, this was fulfilled in A.D. 70 uh, by Titus, and they um, destroyed Jerusalem and burned down the, the second temple. Uh, but it will also be fulfilled on a larger level with the final Antichrist at the end of the age. Now, back in Luke uh, 19, we see people rejoicing. They're crying out the messianic praise of blesses the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're recognizing Jesus as Messiah. 
and the Pharisees did not like it, and they demanded that he rebuke the disciples. Now, no one understood that the first coming of Jesus was to destroy the works of the devil, and his second coming will be to destroy his enemies, uh, or the enemies of his people and his city. Jesus' response was that if this, they were silent, the stones would have praised him. They would have cried out. I like how the Passion says they would have broke forth in praises. So it's a big deal. The king has come to his city just as Daniel prophesied. But it says in verse 41 that when they drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you then, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave uh, one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word web is uncontrollable weeping. Jesus could not be consoled. There was no way to calm him down. He was weeping and welling over Jerusalem. Now, the hardness of the religious leaders blinded them to the very visitation of the king, the one that they had been preaching about and prophesying about and believing for since, you know, the beginning. Because they did not know the time of their visitation, Jesus saw the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that after he was cut off, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And again, that happened when Titus came in 70 AD. But here's the main point. Jesus was loyal to God and yet wept uncontrollably over his beloved city and country and the destruction that was coming. In other words, Jesus was patriotic. Now, let me define patriotism. He came to die for all. I'm not saying that he's only loyal to his country, but he was definitely patriotic, and he definitely didn't want his nation destroyed. Okay, so patriotism is, quote, a person who loves, supports, and defends his or her country and its interests with devotion. Okay? Now, God has a nation, Israel. We are now the true Israel, if we're born again. So he was devoted to Israel for millennia. But his devotion to Israel did not trump his devotion to mankind whom he loved. So God became man, and he kicked off the first part of the prophecy to Daniel. But also, in the development of Israel, their assignment was to disciple nations. They just didn't do it. They got introspective introverted intro everything that you could think of they they did not view their role as getting other nations involved in their faith okay now thank goodness that god included us in his work of finishing the transgression because if you read in daniel again it says 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So we're included in finishing the transgression, which is basically what started with Adam and Eve when they ate 
of the tree. So he's putting an end to sin and he atoned for iniquity. He restored righteousness to all who would believe, not just in his nation, but all of mankind. Okay. Um, let's see. Judas Iscariot did not understand this epoch. He, like many, including other disciples or other apostles, thought that Jesus was coming in the role of an earthly king to drive out Israel's earthly enemies and hearken an age of liberty for Israel that would continue forever. That is coming, but it was not part of the first coming. Because Judas ascribed to Jesus a role he was not there to do at that time, he became offended and he betrayed him. But does it mean that there was never a time for conflict to free a nation? Absolutely not. God will always exhaust all options before war. War is man's decision, not God's. Which takes us to the second definition of a patriot, which is, quote, a person who regards himself or herself as a defender, especially of individual rights against presumed interference by the federal government. Okay, now, Judas's patriotism to Israel trumped his love of God. In fact, he equated his love of country to his love of God. They are not the same. Sometimes your love of God will put you in conflict with your country, okay? Which is taking us into the second definition that it's a person who will defend individual rights against any interference of the federal government. Okay, so individual rights are given to us not by man and not by documents. Our Declaration of Independence, our uh, Constitution, they do not give us our rights. In fact, uh, and the Bill of Rights don't either, these documents were created to protect our inalienable rights given to us by God against unjust government. In fact, inalienable rights, the, the purpose of the Declaration of Independence specifically says that our rights are, that document was created to protect our inalienable rights. Inalienable means they're natural. They come from God. They don't come from man. Therefore, a patriot is one who is willing to protect and defend inalienable natural rights from God, from unjust governments who want to take away those natural rights. Okay? So this is very important. A lot of people think that the Constitution gives us our rights or the Bill of Rights give us our rights, but they don't. They are only created to protect us. And if you look at the hierarchy of the government, it's not the federal government up here and then the state, then the local, and then us. It's we the people. We're up here at the top. Then our local, our state, and the federal is supposed to be the least and the smallest government there is. So you can tell just by those words, and that's how our framers designed the United States government, and our focus on the federal aspect, not on our local government. I mean, to get people to vote in local elections, almost impossible, our state even, I mean, we have been distracted by the federal thinking that that is the overarching um, or overarching, however it's supposed to be said, but that that is the most important government. They're the ones that protect us, that give us our rights, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's states' rights. 
and it's local elections that are very, very important. Now, the Revolutionary War. This is an interesting one. In Ecclesiastes 3.8, it says there's a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. When the Lord comes back the second time, it will be a time for war. But he first had to wage war against the enemy and judge him before he could wage war against his physical enemies. Our job is to recognize the time that we're in. So in 1 Chronicles 12.22, it says of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Now, I love this. Issachar and his tribe had a unique ability to look and understand the times they were in. And so they also knew what Israel should do in those times. So they didn't just go like, well, looks like we're, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were then like, hey, let's do this, this, and this. That's what we need. One of the things that we are sorely lacking in America as far as the ecclesia or the church, however you want to phrase it, but remember, ecclesia is actually the word Jesus used, is discernment. It is shocking how little discernment Christians walk in. And uh, so we must have discernment. All right, now fast forward to America, okay? So we're British uh, subjects have established 13 colonies and we're all loyal to the King of England at this time until their loyalty to God created a conflict. See, here's what a lot of people don't understand about our history. It wasn't just taxation without representation. Okay, so the 13 colonies were all loyal to the King of England until, again, their loyalty to God created a conflict. The pilgrims came to America to establish a government from the start that recognized inalienable rights. One of those inalienable rights was the freedom of worship, which was not allowed in England. Even though they were British subjects, they were establishing liberty over here that would eventually culminate in a standoff with England who did not believe in liberty. They don't believe in inalienable rights. They don't believe that you can worship however you want to worship. They may now to a degree, but they're still very much uh, in control of the thoughts of their subjects. So, our founding fathers recognized the need for a completely new country, and so they began to form it. Now, I highly, highly recommend uh, Chris Ann Hall. She's a, a, a lawyer. I recommend her teachings at libertyfirstsociety.com. She's America's constitutional lawyer. She's researched she, all this stuff, I'm telling you. She's researched it from original source documents or straight from the horse's mouths. Here's what's amazing. People tell us that we, lay people, people too stupid to understand uh, what the Constitution means, they tell us it's, it's, it's confusing. You know, you have to be a lawyer, you have, to, you, know, you have to be an expert to understand the Constitution. You have to, you know, have a degree. You have to be a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's actually very easy. I have it in my book. It's straightforward. You read it and it's like, oh, Oh, so when they uh, seized our businesses and told us that we had to shut down, that's actually not allowed according to the Constitution? Huh, interesting. Oh, if we have a grievance, we need to go with our state Constitution first before we go to um, America's Constitution so we can have a better chance of winning? Huh, interesting. I mean, all of these things have been put in place to protect us from the government. 
And then you have talking heads and media and professors that tell us we're too dumb to understand our own documents. It's ridiculous. Just go to the original source, go to the original people, they will tell you what they mean. Just wait till we get into church and state. That whole thing is a, a sham. Okay, one thing that she discovered, Chris Ann Hall, is that our founding documents were actually formed over 760 years. They began in 1016 to be exact. From five original documents, the 1100 Charter of Liberties, the Magna Carta, the Petition of 1628, the Grand Remonstrance of 1641, and the English Bill of Rights. All of these were formed because of a progression and a lot of mistakes from a totalitarian government from the throne, and, and how that even occurred is extremely interesting, that our founding fathers knew, they knew their history as British subjects. They saw some of the things that these documents were meant to address, the king taking liberties that were not due him. And so they saw these things, they had all of these documents, and they learned from the mistakes of England, and they formed a constitutional republic. We are not a democracy. We are not a democratic republic. We are not a mob rule. We are a constitutional republic. Now that's very important because popular vote is mob rule. Instead, we decided to elect people to represent what we wanted so that we didn't have people, crazy people, uh, dictators, take over our country by popular vote. What you see happen, Russia, Venezuela, etc., they are, no one else is a constitutional republic. That's so important to understand and why we are so privileged and so successful and so powerful as a nation. I love this stuff. Okay, and I know it may not sound spiritual, but God had his hand all in this. So we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. And with the power and the wisdom of God, they recognize that our rights do not come from man, they come from him. So, in the preamble of our Declaration of Independence, they penned that the purpose of government is to, quote, secure these rights, our natural rights, our God-given rights. That's the only purpose of the Declaration of Independence. These were then outlined in the Constitution, which the states did not trust. They were afraid that the Constitution was going to give a federal government more power and take us back down the road of England. So they demanded a Bill of Rights before the states would concede to the Constitution. Well, here we are. We're like basically almost like England. Now, even after all these safeguards were put in place, states' rights, bill of rights, the right to own property, the right to carry a weapon, the right of free press, right to worship, the right to have a redress of grievances, we get all these things enshrined as natural laws protected by our documents, but even some were worried about it. And so, it was this fear that caused the Danbury Baptists Association of Connecticut to write Thomas Jefferson about their concerns. In his letter he wrote, Gentlemen, the affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation which you are so good as to express towards me on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association gives me the greatest satisfaction. 
My duties dictate a faithful and zealous pursuit of the interests of my constituents, and in proportion as they are persuaded of my fidelity to those duties, the discharge of them becomes more and more pleasing. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he, man, owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislators should make no law respecting an establishment of religion and prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Hmm. Interesting. Let me break this down for you. They wrote this letter because they were concerned that the Constitution and even the Bill of Rights were not enough to protect Christians because we are a Christian nation. This was When they talk about religion and stuff here, they are not talking about Satanism. They're not talking about Buddhism. They're not talking about Hinduism. Although, we don't mind if people worship that stuff. But they have to understand this nation was found on Christian principles and the Word of God. Therefore, they created the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. What he's telling them is to protect man and their worship of God from interference by the government. It was never, ever meant to be weaponized against Christians being involved in politics or God being in the courtroom or God being in the school. None of that stuff. And for many, many centuries or decades, the wall of separation in the state actually protected those rights until some rogue Supreme Court justice decided to only take the phrase separation between church and state and out of that came a doctrine that has now kicked God out of everything. But that was never the case. You can read it in his own handwriting. See, this stuff gets me fired up because there's a lot of stuff that's around politics and our, our nation that is actually causing us to lose our nation. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. I reciprocate your kind prayers for the protection and blessing of the common Father and Creator of man, and tender you for yourselves and your religious association assurances of my high respect and esteem, Thomas Jefferson, January 1st, 19, or 1802. Now, the phrase separation of church and state is not in the Constitution, but the idea of it is in the First Amendment, which states, which means that the First Amendment was a wall between the church and state, meaning the state could not establish a single religion over another or interfere in the free exercise of worship. It was never, ever meant to kick God out. Now, this topic is too expensive to go into uh, in depth right now, but stay tuned because I'll have lots of um, podcasts where I'm going to get into it. But I highly recommend David Barton's book, uh, Separation of Church and State, which you can get at wallbuilders.com. Uh, okay. England, of course, did not agree with our position. <laughs> and by the way, states did have certain religions. Uh, Connecticut was Baptist. Um, I believe Rhode Island and New York was um, Catholic. 
which was very unusual, very rare. Some were Methodists. In fact, you could be beaten or you could not even get the, you wouldn't even have the ability to preach under a certain denomination, conduct funerals and weddings and things like that if you were of a particular uh, religion in certain states. So the Constitution got rid of that. And you, you can't have a specific denomination be the state denomination. Okay? But again, when the founding fathers are referring to religion, they are not referring to Satanism, they're not referring to Hinduism, Buddhism, none of that. They make it very plain in their writings, although they believed that the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Christianity would always win out against any religion. And so for that reason, they were confident enough to not um, censor other religions that were apart from Christianity. It's a very interesting deal. Very interesting. So anyway, now from the start, you know, England and our position did not get along. There was much back and forth. We tried to negotiate with England. Uh, we tried to get uh, some type of agreement and they decided to wage war against us. And so from the start, the pilgrims established government in their colonies based on the Bible and self-government. They also learned from their mistakes. Jamestown was actually a socialist town. They had common gardens. Everybody was expected to work the same level and to enjoy the same level of prosperity, etc. But in, excuse me, instead, the lazy sat at home while a few worked. So in Plymouth, they're like, yeah, we're not doing that. See, that's why in Jamestown, they almost starved to death the first winter because no one would work. And so Plymouth, they're like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. So what they did is they established free market uh, capitalism, which means if you don't work, you don't eat. And after they did that, they uh, prospered in extraordinary ways. Uh, it's a biblical model, and uh, our country took after them, and we have become one of the most powerful nations. Also, if you go to the original documents and you look at the formation of Rhode Island, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and many more, they were established on Bill of Rights and Faith in God. Our uh, final constitution was modeled very, very closely to Virginia's Bill of Rights. On top of that, many government leaders were also clergy. In fact, the Revolutionary War started in the yard of a church in Lexington, and the pastor had already been training his men on how to fight, and they were involved in that battle. And the first drop of blood came from a black man. That was defending this nation. Isn't that amazing? A lot of people are like, well, we were uh, built on a racist nation. No, actually, where it says um, all men are created equal in God, that almost stopped America from even being formed because you had the pro slavery. It's like, no, uh uh, not all men are created equal because they thought that black people were less than white people. But then you had the others. George Washington them, even though they owned slaves, and I might get into that, I don't know if I do, is British laws, so they couldn't get rid of them, but they were like, no, they knew that this was a legal document. They were very legalistic in the good sense, meaning they, there was an establishment of law, and if they had in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, they knew that eventually someone would use that statement legally to free slaves and to end it in this country, hopefully without war, but of course we know that didn't happen. So we have many government leaders that were clergy. Sermons were overtly political. 
uh, during that time, not only would they preach uh, the word against the king's oppressive policies and control over how Americans worshipped, uh, many despised slavery. In fact, that was one of their 27 grievances listed in our Declaration of Independence. Did you know that? That our Declaration of Independence had 27 grievances that we submitted to the King of England and America's first anti-slavery society was formed in 1774. Okay, so I want to read um, a little bit out of this book called The Role of Pastors and Christians in Civil Government, also by David uh, Barton. So let's see, pages eight. Let me get there. Another indication of how little is known today about our own history is revealed when Americans are asked who were the leaders most responsible for the movement in America that led to our independence. Today we hear names such as Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolution, Thomas Jefferson, the principal author of the Declaration, uh, John Hancock, the President of Congress with his bold signature on the Declaration, and John Adams, who not only signed the Declaration but also negotiated and signed the Peace Treaty with Great Britain to secure our independence. These were indeed important political leaders behind our independence, but previous generations also knew about other important leaders. John Adams himself declared that Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew and Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper were two of the individuals most conspicuous, the most ardent and influential in the awakening and revival of American principles and feelings that led to our independence. Other ministers whose influence and leadership were also important included Reverend George Whitfield, that I had no idea, he's one of our great revivalists of awakening, uh, Reverend James Caldwell, John Peter Gabriel Mullenberg, this dude, he gets up and preaches his sermon, and then when he's done, he takes off his clerical robes, underneath he's wearing an, a, a, a military uniform, and it's like, whoever's going to join me, join me, because I'm going to go fight the British, and I'm like, can you imagine if that happened today? Probably thrown in jail. Um, with his brother, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, and many more. You don't hear much about the role of the church of ministers and Christians in the founding of our uh, government. Why could John Adams say that pastors in particular and Christians in general were so influential in our move for independence? It was because of the work of pastors in shaping the thinking of the nation and because of the work of Christians in founding our government. Do you see why? It is so important to move beyond the color of the carpet in the church or the color of the chairs or the petty differences you have with people, whatever it is. And it is important that we begin to shape the thought of Christians in this nation because they are still the most powerful voice. But if we don't shift gears and start addressing political concerns, then we're going to uh, end up probably losing this nation. Uh, they also um, had published sermons, and there's a lot of them. They only represented a small fraction of what was taught back then, but um, these had significant life-changing impact. The topics of early published ser sermons demonstrate that the church truly believed and taught the nation that there is nothing that the life, uh, uh, nothing in life the Bible does not address. I mean, they would teach on earthquakes and different, you know, the great fire of Chicago and different things like that, the eclipse, uh, all of those things. But they had an annual sermon that was titled the Election Sermon. It was the longest traditional form of annual sermon in America, and the first documented one was preached in 1634 in Virginia and each year after until the 20th century. 
They were preaching pulpits across America. So uh, Christians in America understood their dual citizenship as citizens of heaven and citizens of America. And they also understood that they were stewards of the government of America because it was we the people. And uh, another sermon was a voice of warning to Christians on the ensuing election of a president of the United States. I mean, this is crazy. Like they, they would teach about Ahab and Jezebel and what can happen to a nation. Um, now, it was interesting. At some point, people wanted to get Christians out of office. And, um, and they served directly in a uh, legislator. And some people didn't like that. But it was taught, and, and then uh, in some places, they couldn't even serve in legislator or they couldn't serve in the degree that they would want to serve. So Thomas Jefferson himself encouraged the lifting of restrictions against ministers and clergy that had been imposed in his state in Virginia. And he said, I observe in the Virginia Constitution abridgment of a right I do not approve. It is the incapacitation of a clergyman from being elected. He wished to see clergymen possess the same rights as others. Today, however, that's not the case in the area of free speech, nor has it been since 1954 when a U.S. senator became responsible for enacting a policy that treated nonprofit organizations, including churches, differently, which I have a podcast on that that's very enlightening. Um, John Locke was a powerful political influence in America in the Declaration of Independence. Independence. Critics uh, today classify him as um, a deist or a forerunner of deism, but he wasn't. Um, he was a theologian. Uh, he wrote a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on Paul's epistle. He compiled a topical Bible. When anti-religious Enlightenment thinkers attacked Christianity, he defended Christianity in his book, The Reasonable Reasonableness of Christianity in, as Delivered in the Scriptures. But the writing of John Locke that most influenced the Founders' philosophy in the Declaration of Independence was his true tre two treatises of government. In fact, the signer of the Declaration, Richard Henry Lee, declared that the de Declaration itself was copied from Locke's treatise on government. Okay? So it goes on and on and on. Um, so we've got Christian clergy. We've got... Uh, ministers that are specifically influencing the thought of the country and those that are forming it. Um, political scientists, this is interesting, embarked on an ambitious 10-year project to analyze some 1,500 writings from the founding area, era. Those writings were examined with the goal of isolating and identifying the specific political sources quoted during the time surrounding the establishment of American uh, government. From the 15,000 writings selected, the researchers isolated some 3,154 quotations and then documented the original sources of those quotations. The research revealed that the single most cited authority in the writings of the Founding Fathers was the Bible. And then it goes into the scriptures that go along with it. Um, the general principles which the uh, Fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Um, many other founding fathers and early political leaders declared that America was guided by or founded on Christian principles. Um, and it goes into the long, long list of that. In fact, one guy said, if for a minute, for a second, Americans thought we were not fighting to defend our right to worship God, they would have not fought in the revolution. They would have called off everything. Um, 
let's see. Oh, this is neat. It was because of the, those of this strong Christian faith, the founders were willing to welcome those of other faiths to America. The founders knew the truth of Christianity, and they believed that it would prevail on its own merits without the need for force or, or coercion. Um, let's see here. Oh, here it is. This is uh, 1854. Following an extensive one-year investigation, the U.S. Congress is simply declared. Had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, but not any one denomination. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the Republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. Uh, and, and then the Supreme Courts upheld that. Uh, even the most, uh, like, or I guess I should say the least religious founders, Franklin and Jefferson, um, they felt Christianity in the Bible was very important and that it should be taught in schools, both of them. Um, let's see, over half of the signers of the Declaration were uh, uh, educated in schools created for the purpose of training ministers of the gospel. Uh, many of the founders also served as ministers and were active in Christian service. Um, Dr. John Witherspoon was an ordained minister of the gospel, pu published several books of gospel sermons, and played major roles in two American editions of the Bible, including one from 1791. Uh, John Wise was really neat. Um, I mean, it just, in fact, Benjamin Frankler, Franklin uh, loved the idea of Sunday schools, and so he helped start America's first Bible society the Bible Society of Philadelphia. And uh, that was so they could teach the Bible uh, every Sunday morning, etc., etc. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so neat um, the role that, you know, Christians played in the forming of our country. Most citizens believe that the Constitution governs, governs America, but it does not. In fact, while the Founding Fathers were framing the Constitution at the Constitutional Conviction, Convention, there was a discussion over the impact of the Constitution would be in limiting the misconduct of public officials. The decision was best summed up by Delegate John Francis Mercer, who declared, It is a great mistake to suppose that the paper we are to propose will govern the United States. In other words, it's an error to think that the Constitution would be able to do it. It is the men whom it will bring into the government and interests they have in maintaining it that are to govern them. The paper will only mark out the mode and the form. Men are the substance and must do the business. Is that interesting? And one of the most quoted biblical principles uh, by our founding fathers was Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Uh, so they understood the Constitution does no good in the hands of wicked leaders, which is why we have a responsibility to vote in those that are the closest to righteousness, the closest to American principles as possible. So the success of our government is not in how good our documents are, but in how good our leaders are, and our leaders are good if we are. Okay? So that's very, very important, and that's why it's so important to vote. Um... Like 41% of people that are born-again Christians don't vote. That's 10 million. And if, 
a, an additional 25% voted that to what we got now, we would we would vote biblically and we wouldn't have some of the nonsense we have going on right now. Um, President Garfield reminded Americans almost a century ago, now more than ever, the people are responsible for the character of their conduct. Con Congress, that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt is because the people tolerate ignorant, ignorance, re uh, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it's because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. If the next centennial does not find us a great nation, it'll be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nation do not aid in controlling the political forces. And then, like a lot of these arguments of, you know, like keeping religion out of school and stuff, 61% support prayer in schools of this nation. 74% want the Ten Commandments back in the classroom. 76% approve of creation being taught in schools. 64% oppose late-term abortion. But you wouldn't know that based on uh, the news. Charles Finney, a leader in both the America's Second and Third Great Awakenings, said the church must uh, take right ground in regard to politics. The time has come that Christians must vote for honest men and take consistent ground in politics. Christians can have been exceedingly guilty in this matter, but the time has come when they must act differently. God cannot sustain this free and blessed country which we love and pray for unless the church will take right ground. It seems sometimes as if the foundation of the na nation are becoming rotten, and Christians seem to act as if they think God does not see what they do in politics. But I tell you that He does, and He will bless or curse this nation according uh, to the course that Christians take in um, voting in, in, in politics. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Charles Finney, he talks a lot in his memoirs about that. Okay, so with this understanding of the clear Christian nature, nature of our cause of liberty, George Washington sought three times to gather an army to prepare for the coming invasion of the Brits, and he failed. It wasn't until he approached clergy, the same clergy that regularly preached sermons concerning political matters. Then he was able to gain an army. I highly recommend that you listen to the Black Robe Regiment uh, in my podcast, We the Deplorables, uh, to understand how important and crucial clergy was in the formation and defense of this country. The term Black Robe Regiment was a derogatory term by the British to refer to the clergy that it feels sparked the war and the abolition of slavery. So, the Revolutionary War was an example of Ecclesiastes 2 8, the time to war. We the people. We're very reluctant for conflict. We're very patient. However, it is beyond time for a new black robe regiment of ministers to quit hiding behind Romans 13 and engage in peaceful non-compliance, peaceful non-compliance, uh, preach doctrine, preach sermons that shape the mind of the citizens of this country to defend it, to understand how things work, what we were set for to restore some of the principles that have been uh, ran over by the federal government before we end up in another war. That's, that, that's my greatest concern. If we don't turn these things around, we're going to end up in a war, whether it's enemies attacking us or within our own borders. That's what I'm trying to avoid. 
When you examine the conflict God followers experience in the Bible, it was always against unjust government. Look it up. Just look at every time it was unjust governments. There's no uh, scripture, there's no doctrine that supports in the Bible abdicating our role in government, voting, the marketplace, or any other sphere. The founding fathers knew it, the clergy knew it, and it's time for us to know it.